here we are in the context of dreams. Dreams started with Yaakov. Dream, dreams continued throughout last week's parasha. They continue here. They continue in the Haftarah and the aftermath of dreams. And so let's talk a little bit more about dreams. When it came to Yaakov, I argued that there were two ways of viewing the dreams of the stairway to and from heaven and the God wrestling and Yaakov's realization that God is in this place. One is that no dramatic information about religious experience of God has been revealed here, except that Yaakov fell asleep at the future altar site of Bethel, which is what he means by God being in this place. At that altar site, Rashi explains, God exists, angels exist, stairwells exist. They are a lot like our conventional world, except they are invisible over there. Faith, one might say, is the faith that there is a possibility that angels and God exist invisibly over there. And they fit pretty well into our common language and conceptions, except that we grace them with words like supernatural. Rashi's explanation of the Bethel altar site doesn't explain the second dream, however, which takes place elsewhere at the Yabuk. The other way to explain it is that God being in this place is the realization that the God world and our world coexist. That Yaakov made a discovery about our world, or maybe we're to make a discovery about our world. In Wittgenstein's phrase, Yaakov learned a new way of seeing our own world. Our own world in this phrase means we see the world in conventional terms, as a collection of objects and people among those objects, the ways we talk about our experiences, coordinate, coordinate our ways of seeing and experiencing the world. On one level, the lowest common denominator of conventional experience becomes the yardstick by which we measure everything, even the divine, or put in the language of the humanities, our conventional language mediates and shapes our experience of the world and maybe shapes what we think the divine is. In the Rashi case, and that of billions of a certain kind of religious believer, that conventional language shapes the vision of the God world. And that's the irony of fundamentalism. The leap of faith in it is that they are invisible entities that fit really well into our mundane categories. The world was created in six days. Amazing, huh? If you don't believe it, you don't believe in God or the truth of the Bible. God is really like a powerful magician. Or is it, as the rabbis say, that a God, why do you think a God day is like a human day? Why would you take the conventional category of human day and apply it to God's time? In the non-Rashi way, what Yaakov realized is that the God world is everywhere. And he was so tied previously into the mundane level of experience that he wasn't seeing it. There's another world going on in the room in which you sit now. There's an overlay to our world that defies the lowest common denominator conventions. It's not that angels are ghosts. It's that angels are us. It's that the dead aren't entirely dead in this world. It's that behind the furniture of our mornings, noons, and nights are signposts from God indicating directions for us. And we don't see them and we walk right past them as the modim anach nulach prayer intimates three times a day in our Amidah. It's that the people we have so neatly organized in our lives are not so neatly organized. They are more like processes than they are like things 
they are more like becomings than they are like beings. And this is the view of the Kabbalists, that the world is suffused with the God world. And our task within it is to learn a new way of seeing, a new way of receiving, of being receptive, Kabbalah. When I interact with Lin, I'm not interacting with an object, a person with a history and a resume and her set of tasks divided with mine. I'm interacting with a soul. Sometimes I think the best way to relate to another is to strip away our preconceptions, to practice Maimonides' negative theology, to say that every conventional thing I think about Lynn, that she even says about herself, are illusions. To not believe, to move to the place where I don't even believe in the evidence of my conventional senses and categories. And instead, I should be looking at her and put aside all my preconceptions and language and even my senses, and especially my intellectual senses, and say, I did not know Lynn was in this place. The real world we share is the soul world, two fragments of God interacting, connected, dancing, wrestling. The soul world is our real world, one I'm not usually seeing. It's what Heschel called in God in Search of Man, knowledge by inacquaintance. He argues that religion, Judaism, is supposed to be cultivating in us how to know intimately by admitting that what we're not seeing is the real in each other because we are brainwashed in a way by thinking our knowledge of acquaintance is the real one. Instead, we need to practice knowing through inacquaintance. I do not know the you that is in this place yet. And my preconceptions need to fall like scales from my eyes. And so Yaakov sees that God is not a, God's not a man in the clouds, a wizard of Oz, but in the God's suffused world, God is within us and around us and God, Yaakov wrestles with him. And this isn't separate from his problems with his fears and his deep anxiety, what he's going through in the world. They are one and the same. The dream world is a window, though window is too conventional a term because it suggests a clarity we don't really have into the God world that is our world. And perhaps the greatest common denominator of all living beings is that we dream every night. To live our brains, ourselves, enter into a non-conventional reality where the rules do not apply and something is revealed. It's a soul world. As I offered before, we're learning to see that a psilocybin experience is not necessarily a drug experience, an aesthetic show of neurological firings, but is more like the biblical dream, an opening to see the world we live in differently, and in many cases, rise above the perspectives that trap us, the perspective of victimization, of powerlessness, and of conformity. Yaakov showed us that learning to see a world without the anxiety and the depression if only he gets to renew that perspective occasionally in moments of insight and God connection, when he lives as the Yisrael soul, when we live as the Yisrael soul, the one in which Yisrael, God prevails. And I received a question following that sermon. I thought it meant God wrestling. And there are various translations of Yisrael and different arguments about it. But rather than one who wrestles with God, I favor those scholars who say that it actually means God is wrestling, God is prevailing. And so we become Yisrael when that higher perspective 
without the fear and without the conventionality and without the feeling of powerlessness. When we live that, we're letting God prevail. It's the dream of Yisrael. It's when God wins. Actually, in Jewish and Christian texts from the Greco-Egyptian era during the Second Temple, actually, they viewed Yisrael as coming from the root to see. And they said what Yisrael means is a person seeing God, like in our dreams, like all around us. So dreams continue in last week's parasha and continue on through this narrative, and this time not with Yaakov's experience of seeing the world in a way in which our souls sees the God world instead of the mundane world in our patterns of powerlessness. This time, it's everyone's dreams, from the baker, the cupbearer, to Pharaoh, and therefore to all of us. And God isn't just speaking to Yaakov because he's special. Yosef tells us that God is speaking to each one who is dreaming. Our dreams are part of our religious journey into the future world. What of, the, what of the future is revealed and what is hidden? What is our soul? What part of what looks to be utterly hidden, maybe not even real, is actually exploring ahead of us? When our knowledge of familiarity, our conventional thinking, our intellectual senses show us only familiar speculation. And in this odd parasha that has no beginning and no end, though its name indicates it's a plot climax, its logic mirrors the dream world itself. Dreams defy the narrative structure we think is a true and normal part of the intersection of time and ourselves, but maybe another conventional lowest common denominator mediation. Maybe there is no real beginning in our experiences and maybe no real ending Maybe that's the interpretations we give later and dreams refuse to conform to. And much of Miquette's turns on the themes of hiddenness and openness, concealment and revelation that echo throughout Joseph's stories as they do our dreams. The whole parasha reads like a dream itself, like the brothers feeling that, they, that another has control over them, that they have no idea what the heck is going on what the heck is going to happen next? That they're struggling to impose a logical structure on what in Yosef continues to defy it. If the waking world is the one where in the light of day, we know what things are, Imikates the brothers don't even know who Yosef is. In Genesis 43 verse three, different translations handle the concealment differently in a fascinating way. Some translate the verse that the brothers are not seeing Yosef's face. Others translated, that the brothers' faces are not being shown to Yosef or shouldn't be. The waking world is operating according to dream logic. Interestingly, just as I rehearsed Rashi before as conventional, there's a huge argument about what it means when Yosef says in chapter 42, verse nine, that he's recalling the dreams that he had dreamed about his brother as he's going through this process. And Rashi says, he realizes God was prophetic and told the future and the dreams are coming true. It's all so simple. Dreams are fortune telling when you get them from God. And we're not like Yosef. We're, we're not like Yosef. We don't get those dreams. They're special. Or let's take the less conventional view, Ramban, the mystical commentator. Ramban tells us Rashi's out to lunch. If you actually look at the verse, the dreams aren't coming true. It's not happening. The brothers who are supposed to be bowing before him, they're not all there. His father who's supposed to be bowing before him and his mother, they're not there. What happened? 
Why is it that the dreams he dreamed are the reality he's living in isn't conforming to it? And the whole process of him moving forward with his dreams is to say, how do I form a covenant with God, a partnership in which my power is to try to make what was revealed somehow in my dreams to come true? And that everything that's happening is a dream that Yosef is creating. It's a dream logic that he's creating to make them come true. He is entering from his dreams into the world and combining them. In lockdown, many of us are dreaming more and more intensely. In normal times, we function on a lack of sleep. For no good reason and against all science, we make our developing children and teenagers get up at ungodly hours to go to schools that start too early. And as they age, we allow them to stay up late to finish homework or to socialize by phone app lest they not complete their work and not achieve, and lest they not have a social life. We all know the obvious, that if there's anything like getting our souls in rhythm with the cosmos, with nature, with each other, and with ourselves, it's the circadian rhythms, which rely on proper sleep to align ourselves with both worlds. But we break them. We break those rhythms, and under normal circumstances, I answer emails at midnight and agree to 7 a.m. breakfast meetings, rousing my kids in what seems like the middle of the night to get them to school, looking at them bleary-eyed and out of sync with reality, and this is hubris against God. We knowingly wreck the rhythm of the dream world alignment that is our world. In our own congregation, we have Galit Dunyets, a leading researcher in this field. Her research interests lie in the intersections of sleep medicine, epidemiology, and women's health. She examines the impact of sleep disturbances on cardiometabolic, reproductive, and maternal infant morbidities. In addition, she studies pathways between poor sleep and adverse health across the lifespan. Beyond her research, she's passionate about sleep health education among adolescents, as well as health and education equity. She tells me this, dreams are one of the most fascinating and mystifying aspects of sleep. Since Sigmund Freud called attention to them and perhaps before, neuroscience and psychology have tried to understand them. But the truth is, much remains unknown about both sleep and dreams. Even the most fundamental question why do we even dream at all, is still subject to significant debate. Dreams are images, thoughts, or feelings that occur during sleep. Sometimes there's visual imagery. Sometimes they involve all of the senses. Some people dream in color. Some people dream in black and white. Most normal dreams are from a first-person perspective. They're involuntary, and they don't necessarily include coherent or logical content, but they're heavily emotional and they incorporate elements from our life and rearrange them in their own logic. We're not exactly sure, we're not even close to being sure why we're dreaming, but some things are pieces, elements that we're trying to place in context. We know that dreams build memory. I was interested that it's the word, yiskor, that Yosef says he remembered his dreams. And in Judaism, as you know, and as Deborah Ball has shared with us before, in Judaism, the word for memory involves an action in this world. It's like by remembering the dreams, 
they changed the way we act in this world, and they certainly changed Yosef's acting in this world. They build memory. We think that they process emotion. The ability to engage with and rehearse feelings in different imagined contexts may be part of our brains managing our emotions and working through them. They accomplish mental housekeeping, we think. They're a way of aligning us, clearing away erroneous information, trying to show us what's important and bring us to it. Sometimes they're a form of instant replay. They're a different version of what we're going through, showed to us, maybe even analyzed within themselves, involuntarily. Some people just say, it's all incidental brain activity and you're overthinking it. And experts in the field of neuroscience and psychology continue to try to figure out what's happening in these two hours of dreaming each night during sleep. Why is it that when the human being is deprived of sleep, it's torture and they're open to be brainwashed by another? Dreams, as Yosef tells us, are part of our relationship with God. Sleep, Galit, and other researchers tell us are part of our getting in alignment with each other and with ourselves, with God. In this lockdown year, a year of sabbatical rest, not, but not in the normal sabbatical sense, but in the biblical sense of a rest that leads to reset, to realignment with the universe, and thereby a changed future. We express our gratitude for a year that has been a finally of enough sleep for so many. Finally, a realignment. Let us continue to accept this gift, a gift of realignment, resouling, and replenishment. I close with a short poem I wrote several years ago. It's called Sleep. Do we really understand sleep? It's no accident that our most convincing explanation was Freud's, precisely because it explained everything but the dreams themselves. The truth about sleep threatens our bedrock beliefs, not coincidentally named, that we are only one person and can be nobody else, that we live in this world and no other, that things are to be understood by their origins and development and not in their unfamiliarity, or that we are independent beings residing in these separate bodies and cannot drift into the earth during the night, living for a while in the earth, inches below our beds, or in stars, or in wind, hurrying back to our bodies before the alarm of waking, and that we aren't living in the past, or in the future, or in time or that time matters. What do we know? That without dreaming, all living things die. That without sleeping, anybody can be brainwashed. That the dreamer, not the expert, usually has a better knowledge of their meaning. We can never understand sleep. Its mastery is in not understanding it. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>